Thanks for pressing play. This is Lockhead on Marketing, the number one charting podcast for marketers, category designers, and entrepreneurs with a different mind. I'm producer Jason DeFilippo, and on this episode, we welcome back Josh Green. He's the CEO at the Mather Group. And in a world of digital marketing BS, sophomoric hacks, and self-congratulatory vanity metrics, Josh is the real deal. On this episode, a powerful dialogue about what it really takes to build your reputation online and do legendary marketing in the digital world. Category Pirate's new book, The 22 Laws of Category Design, is the number one bestseller in both marketing and startups on Amazon. This is the ultimate book of foundational insights, data, and frameworks for people who want to design and dominate new market categories. Go to Amazon today and pick up your copy of The 22 Laws of Category Design. Now, hey-ho, let's go. This is Lockheed on Marketing, the podcast that helps you develop the lens for what makes legendary marketing legendary. Hosted by Christopher Lockhead, three-time CMO, godfather of category design, and a high school dropout, who the Marketing Journal calls one of the best minds in marketing, and The Economist calls off-putting to some. So um, I have a thousand questions for you about what's going on in the world of marketing, digital marketing. You're one of my favorite marketers. and. Uh No, you really are. Like you're a very good guy and you're smart and you're not one of these arm waving assholes and you do really good work. And and so um, what do you think is going on right now in marketing? What are the kinds of things that you folks are working on? We're doing a lot of reputation management. Um, I'd say one of the things that that's provoking the most thought is is what's going on with AI and how is that going to impact uh, life, the universe and everything. Um, so you know, I, I think uh, you can't you can't call yourself a real company unless you've got a task force or two or three or four that are all figuring out uh, how how it's going to impact things. Um, so it's uh, that's been fascinating because you get to have a little bit more uh, in depth philosophical conversations than you you might if you were just cranking out a, a typical campaign. Um, so that's that's been one of the big things uh, we've been seeing. So I've noticed recently there's two individuals, both of whom are pieces of shit. One of whom, actually, they're both criminals. Uh, One was convicted civilly of uh, essentially, uh, probably the nice term would be for misrepresentation. Got uh, a civil judgment against them for many, many millions of dollars for selling, selling bogus wine. Um, And another one is a, a piece of shit who started several fake companies during COVID and absconded with several million dollars of taxpayer money uh, when the government was handing out money, um, I think trying to do the right thing, which is help small businesses. And this guy invented a whole bunch of small businesses that don't exist and took a whole bunch of money. And he ended up going to jail and the other guy ended up having to spend uh, millions of dollars to uh, make amends for his uh, bad behavior. Anyway, um, I I was Googling them the other day just because of this topic of reputation management. And interestingly enough, their bad shit is that you got to go and kind of go fairly into, you know, the first four or five links that doesn't show up and you got to kind of go into it. And it struck me, I was thinking about you and it struck me, Oh, I bet these evildoers, these criminals 
have paid some money to try and make those bad things about themselves, government postings and news articles and the like, go as far down on Google searches as possible. Um, and so tell me about tell me about how, how that works. Yeah, I mean, I, I think what it's done is is taken sort of the age old PR tradition of how do you rehabilitate someone's reputation and made it a little bit more visible in this day and age in the same way that, um, you know, many companies want to rank number one on particular keywords to get organic traffic, which is an interesting game and one, you know, worthy of some discussion as well. Um, other people would like to use the same tactics to move things down the rankings that they don't particularly like. So it's sort of um, an SEO in reverse type of situation. And, um, you know, some some tactics will work some of the time. Um, most of the time, you're not, they're not going to be able to erase uh, whatever they did. But uh, sometimes they will have some success moving things down a little bit and making them less visible. Uh, there's also, you know, sort of the question of how Google's algorithm, you know, ranks things. If they were, you know, on the front page of every national newspaper, that's much, much tougher to push down than if just their local paper picked up, uh, you know, a settlement or something. So, um you know, there's there's tons of, of factors and nuance that go into, you know, how Google interprets what's out there to try and serve results back. Now, there's been a lot of talk lately about SEO and content marketing and changes in algorithms and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And it seems like, uh, and you're the expert, so this is a, a question, Josh. A lot of marketers I talk to say, well, you can't really win the SEO game anymore. SEO, back in the day when I was a kid, SEO was da 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 da, and today it's all blah blah blah. And uh, ergo, um, you, you can't win the SEO game, so uh, SEO is dead. What say you, Josh Green? Um, I mean, I think more likely SEO is changing, like it always does. And I think the thing that's probably frustrating is if you had a very authoritative site and you publish content five years ago, your odds of it doing the standard rank well on Google, be in the number one spot and this fire hose of traffic shows up. Yeah, that may very well be dead and gone for a variety of reasons. One is the first slot might not be the first slot anymore. There are lots of other things taking uh, taking up space in Google. Oftentimes the first organic result is almost below the fold between ads and, and snippets and people also ask. So that form of SEO has, has changed fairly dramatically. And if your, your whole SEO strategy is we're going to make some content and because it talks about, uh, some keywords, we should rank on those keywords. Yeah. That, that's not going to happen. It has to be some sort of strategy that that is much more involved in that. And you're sort of seeing the evolution of SEO where uh, for a long time, the only place people thought about how their their content would show up would be Google. You know, we're certainly seeing uh, over the last few months, people are suddenly very concerned about how they're showing up in AI-driven queries. And that's um, just another extension of SEO, which is just another, hey, what is your reputation and, and what does the internet think it knows about you? 
Well, you led me exactly where I wanted to go, Josh, with you, which mm. is the sort of the big, since the last time we spoke, ChatGPT, Bard, et cetera, et cetera, didn't exist. And I had this experience. So when ChatGPT first came out, a friend of mine sent me their kind of prompts with it about category design. And uh, it was amazing because it was, you know, I don't know, 70, 75% correct. So um, one of the first things I did when I started playing with ChatGPT, which is I think probably what a lot of people did, which is I asked it, I said, what advice would Christopher Lockhead give me about how to do category design? And and I took the result. I took a photo of that result, Josh, and I posted it on LinkedIn. And I said, excellent. LinkedIn has just, or excuse me, uh, uh, OpenAI, ChatGPT has just replaced me fantastic and a lot of people thought i was serious um and i obviously was was trying to make a several points um and we can get to the points if they matter but um i thought it was really great and and the thought i actually thought about you because i thought oh wait a minute the ai training data of course is the internet or some subset of the internet and so it it the presence of category design on the internet uh, and the richness of information about it and and myself and the other kind of co-creators of, of category design, there must be enough out there that it understands like a meaningful part of this. And me and a handful of other category designers, probably most of note, my buddy Mike Damphouse from uh, Category Design Advisors, we've been trying to teach both GPT and BARD things about category design. And it seems to be getting smarter. And of course, there's others doing it too. And so um, what do we know at this stage of development, Josh, in terms of how GPT and BARD work and the connection between SEO results, your digital presence on the web as we've understood it, and, and now the outcomes that are starting to emerge in these large language models? Yeah, and it, it's fascinating because it's one of the, the quickest developing and, and yet most widely used technologies that's, that's happened in a while. So, um, when it first came out, uh, you know, it had trained, uh, trained through, uh, content in 2020 or 2021. So we were joking here that if your reputation was, you know, terrible in 2020, it was, you know, even if you'd done something good in 2022, uh, AI wasn't going to know about it. And then, uh, I paid my know, taxes. Like, I paid my taxes. <laughs> right. Ex exactly. Or if you did something terrible in 2022, you were in the clear for maybe a, a little bit. And then, you know, two weeks later, it seemed like all the large language models throughout the, uh, you know, the ethical issue of we can't use recent data. We can't use non scrub data. And we're like, well, we're, it's a competitive market. What the heck? We're just going to use modern data. So, you know, that went out the window. And then you've seen that the new iteration of that where everyone's sort of uh, realized, hey, you have to train these models on something and what's being trained on and is our knowledge being absorbed and used to generate um, these answers that everyone's seeing. So you're starting to see pushback against that. So for example, the more information about category design that's out there, as well as the more recently 
those models are sort of scraping the web, the, the better the answers will get because you've done a lot in that space over the last few years. And it keeps um, evolving. You know, you're seeing a lot of companies bar their employees from putting information into ChatGPT or, or other models because you don't know where it goes or, or how it's used. And I think you're going to very quickly start to see vertical models um, that are trained only on specific bodies of knowledge. Like here's here's a, a legal model that, that just knows legal cases. Um, and then you've, uh, you know, sort of got to deal with the, um, the hallucination aspect of things where you just get made up answers, uh, a little bit. So it's, it's fascinating to see. Um, and I'd be curious, you know, what percentage accurate over time you, you view the models as being on category design. Is it, you know, trending upwards? It's, have there been blips? Um, you know, what are you seeing? I think if you talk to me and Damp and a few others who have been paying attention since, you know, November, December, when this, when GPT came out in general, and I don't have any data about this, so it's, it's, it's qualitative, not quantitative, but in general, it seems to be improving. Now, as we were talking, obviously GPT stops in 21, does it not? You know, Actually, maybe, maybe it, it'll, not. It'll tell us. Hold on. Let's, I can go to it right now. So I'm going to ask you the exact same question I, that I just asked Bard, which is, do you know the new book, 22 Laws of Category Design? And this will tell us. September 21. That's when it stopped. Now, so, so it gives you nothing on that because the book came out uh, recently. Interestingly, on Bard, uh, it starts off, It's so I said, do you know the book? And it starts off and says, yes, I'm familiar with the book, 22 Laws of Category Design. And then it does the subtitle, which looks like it's right. And then it gets the authors correct. And then it says published in 2023, which is correct. But interestingly enough, it starts to list the first 10 of the 22 laws, and they're all wrong. I, <laughs> not one of them is right. I'm just looking. No, not one of the laws is right. So it's pulling some kind of information, I would assume, off Amazon and maybe some of the other things we've put out there, but it doesn't have any of the specifics. And interestingly enough, it just made shit up, which uh, some of it is actually completely wrong. Like, for example, law number six, the message of uh, the law of category messaging. Well, anybody who knows anything about category design knows that we think messaging is a is an evil word that we should no longer use. So that would never be a thing. Um, the law of category positioning. Well, category positioning is an oxymoron because if you're positioning, you're positioning inside a category. And if you're doing category design, you're creating one. So again, the law of category positioning is actually like insane. So it, it's, it's just fascinating to see what these models get right and what they get wrong. And if you think that, that in many ways, their goal is to, figure out what the next most likely text is, um, they're going to veer towards a conventional wisdom. So uh, if you were thinking about what's the, what are the rules of category design as created by the muddled middle of, of just most or least common denominator, that's what it sort of thinks would happen. I wonder if you start going, it, if you went to the thinking like Christopher Lockhead, what are the rules of category design? Or or even the more granular you are, I wonder if that would improve your chances greatly of, of you know, 
it possibly being accurate that way, which again, doesn't do any good because there are plenty of people who aren't going to do that and just ask the general question and get the wrong information. Yeah. Let me see if I personalize it, if that helps. Does Christopher Lockett say the 22 laws are, let's see if it gets any closer. Now, as this is pulling up, so let's say I'm a CMO or let's say I'm a marketing manager or a product manager. At, uh, it says I do not have enough information about that person to help with the request. So there you go. A bard doesn't know me and, and chat GPT does. Lies. Um, anyway, so if I'm, if I'm a marketing person and I'm looking at all this happening and I say, okay, Josh, I'm, I'm doing all the good SEO stuff that you and your team have trained me to do, have taught me to do. And I, I understand that because the internet, the web, is the primary source of training data for these uh, large language models, that my internet presence needs to be of consequence. I understand that consequence is both a volume thing as well as a where are you. I mean, you were the guy that helped me understand that you could write an article for Stink Magazine or Fast Company or any of those pieces of garbage, and that would have a, some kind of an SEO value. But when you write an article for HBR, Google looks at that as much more valuable than for a, a clickbait rag. Yes? Yes. So how does all that influence within then what happens in the AI models? What's interesting is um, the, the Washington Post did an article where they did a ton of research on what actually was getting fed into those models and found out that I think Google's patent uh Tool that lists all patents ever was the number one source. Number two was actually Wikipedia. Um, and then it sort of went down the list of, of the usual suspects from there. Um, but what was interesting was it, it's the same sort of model. The, the more credibility something has, the more links it has, the more signals it's going to have. And that's all going to be things that that model will probably take into effect. For example, uh, your book on category design probably has hundreds, if not thousands of links to it. Someone could write an article called category design on their blog with no links from anywhere. And those models will do a pretty good job of going, well, one of these things is way, way better than the other. Um, and I think you're, you're, you know, sort of seeing that in, in terms of what emerges is that the things that you do for SEO um, will ripple through to AI eventually. But in much the same way, if I just write a blog article for my B2B SaaS product, put it on my blog, and it's a bunch of, of uh, buzzwords and no real content, no one's ever going to read it or, or value it. And the same thing will happen with AI and AI will use its own signals to go, no one's ever read this, no one's ever valued it. We're not going to count it for very much versus, uh, yeah. So, you know, it's going to be similar to SEO in that if you are, if you have all the signals that, that you are an authority, if you've been in the real magazines, if you've been in the real newspapers, if you've been cited by other people who have um, authority according to whatever tools are being used, um, that's going to make you more prominent or your voice louder in the mix that's going on in the back end of things. 
um, for AI. So it's going to be very much like SEO. And, and what you've seen is just as the early days of SEO had the, the snake oil um, stuff that would magically uh, improve your rankings to number one and, and give you lots of traffic, what you're now seeing is people uh, selling or promoting themselves with the secret sauce of, I know the prompts that will let you get exactly what you want out of chat GPT, or here's how to show up the way you want to. Um, and, and that's, you know, sort of everything old is, is new again. You, you're sort of seeing that same playbook where it's, uh, you know, uh, buy, buy my course and learn how this all works. It's so funny that you say that because as chat, G, this was even pre Bard. I keep wanting to call it Baird Bard um, came out. Um, it was very clear what was going to happen. And so I did a post on LinkedIn and Twitter and I said, um, how long before the hustle porn influencer, fake guru, scam artists, launch their uh, how to be a marketer, entrepreneur, how to make money, et cetera, et cetera, with AI. And uh, sure enough, about, uh, I'd have to go back and look exactly, Josh, but I think I posted that in, you know, January, February, early February timeframe. And within several weeks, uh, both Gary VD and Ty Lopez uh, launched their uh, uh, buy my bullshit AI course. (laughs) Yeah, um, I mean, it's sort of the, the you know, I think the question for people who have an audience is, you know, do you have something valuable that you can bring along and, and help people with, or do you just need to be on the front end of every trend? Um, and like you said, you're certainly seeing you know, it, it isn't too hard to guess who's going to pop up, um, you know, with with all their tips on how AI is going to make you a, a more efficient person and take care of all of your uh, stuff, which my uh, very cluttered office would, would beg to differ on at the moment. <laughs> so here's something, uh, sort of an aha that we've had over the last handful of months as all this has been playing out. So I've had lots of conversations with Category scientists, marketing data scientists, marketing analytical people, people in the in more in your world. And what they're telling me, and I want to triangulate this with you, which is if your digital if you are essentially if you have a digital presence that's tied to a topic area that is unique. The more unique it is and the more you are viewed digitally as a leader in whatever that field, that topic is, the more likely you're going to rank not just from an SEO perspective, but now from an AI perspective. And the more broad the category, like if I wanted to declare myself um, the guru of personal growth, well, I might have a real hard time surpassing Oprah and Tony Robbins and I don't know who. And so, in other words, the more prolific you are, the more unique you are in a field that is specific, the more successful you're going to be in building a digital presence, a.k.a. SEO, and the more successful you'll become in the language models. Is that is that what you're seeing, Josh? Um, mostly, I, I, I think that's accurate for the same reason that it's um 
that it's there in SEO. If you write some content that is in an area that no one owns um, or a new category, then it's it's much easier to be the leader. If you wanted to write, you know, something about guitars, that would be very tough. If you wanted to write on write guitars that appear on podcasts, you know, you, you'd have a much better chance of ranking well, you'd have a much better chance of, of standing out. So um, I, I agree with that. The more unique you are, the better off you're going to be both in terms of SEO and in AI. I think in AI, it could get a little wonky in that if you're the only one ever writing about red guitars on the wall, then AI is going to have to make some much bigger guesses um, when it needs to fill in the content. If it's trying to figure out, um, you know, the answer to a hustle porn question, there are hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of examples. So it can, it can smush them together and get something that sounds plausible. Um, you know, if you're, if you're doing something on the bleeding edge, it'll probably take a little while for AI to catch, catch up to it. Um, but I think, and especially if it's if it's sort of real time web crawling, you'll stand out a whole lot more with that. It, it's sort of the same thing, like trying to carve out a niche in in uh, you know hustle porn is probably going to be tough. Yeah, um, just because you're competing against very well established and well funded competitors, who knows where that funding is dispersing to solidify their you know placement? But you're trying to duplicate something someone's already done. Right. So, so the aha here, and look, I'm biased, obviously, but biased for a reason. It's sort of like saying, um, I'm biased to true north because it's a thing that's sort of indisputable. And it's interesting how the laws of category design are indisputable. And so here we sit with a situation where, um, it's getting harder and harder to be known for something generic or very broad. And it's getting easier to be known for a category or a niche that you can own. And so it strikes me that, that uh, being unique um, digitally, having radically unique content matters. And to your point, you don't want to be the only person talking about a topic. And so for years, we've talked about how category designers create movements, category designers create communities, category, you know, if you want to sell Bibles, there needs to be Christians. So category designers need to uh, get disciples fired up, et cetera. And so that's always been true to make any new idea, any new market category tip. Um, but it sounds like to me, that if you want to stand out in the digital world, um, being uniquely associated with something um, that is to say a category that you can own or be part of, as opposed to, hi, let's talk about how you build a personal brand. Or, hi, we just launched a new security SaaS startup. Uh, okay, great. Hi, we just launched a new marketing automation company. Hi, we just launched a new social network. It's like, well, your ability to stand out in those sorts of broad, generic, mega uh, topics and categories is de minimis over time. And AI seems to make it more problematic and makes standing out more powerful. But am I, am I you know, um, 
drinking my own IPAs here, or, or is this is, does this does this land for you? It lands. I mean, I, I I think there there's far more, you know, like a huge percentage chance that you're going to be duplicative and not original versus being too far out where you're the only person on earth writing about something. Um, so yeah, I mean, it, it, to the extent that you're going to pick a direction, I think going with unique with the understanding that you're probably not like totally, totally unique, regardless of, of how, um, you know, how much you, you think you are, there's going to be some other content out there somewhere. Um, you know, there's, there's many, many, many of those hypothetical monkeys typing on keyboards that are out there. But, um, you know, to your example, if you're a SaaS platform, right, you're not going to be the first to, do something versus the likelihood is, is, you know, a hundred times better that you're going to be very similar to someone else that's out there. So, um, I think some of that is, is just, you've got to be you and, and sort of pick your North star on what is, what is our category? What is unique? And, and that usually will translate through, um, you know, eventually to AI, if it's not getting it right away, um, and certainly will help with SEO and, and frankly, will probably just help from an overall business perspective, um, most importantly. Good. Thank you for that. Now, uh, switching topics, maybe, uh, Josh, uh, you guys also help a lot of marketers and entrepreneurs with their LinkedIn presence. Yes. Yes. And uh, I've heard and it seems to be the case in my own personal uh, experience as a, a contributor that they recently changed their algorithm. Is, is that right? Um, it's tough to say. I mean, they, they um, never announce it, but it certainly seems like a lot of people have been noticing changes to their results, which would uh, indicate that, that something's changed in terms of how it's, uh, how it's behaving. Um, you know, and, and there's been a lot of, you know, are we, are we seeing a lot more targeting going on? Um, are we seeing a lot more priority um, professional content going on? And, you know, I, the other thing that people are, are saying, um, you're seeing a lot more first degree content going on. So you're seeing a little bit less of the, um, I guess, the stereotypical, here's my tragic story type of thing on LinkedIn that everyone likes and then has 10,000 likes or the I'm desperately looking for a job and you're seeing a little more uh, first person content um, coming in. So yeah, I, I mean, there's definitely some changes going on and I think it's, it's trying to, uh, you know, reward authenticity a little bit more than, uh, than maybe it did in the past. Hmm. Well, I must be the most inauthentic bastard in the world then. <laughs> oh, your your numbers have oh, uh, have changed. Oh. They smashed me, absolutely smashed me. Um, and it's it's uh, it's fascinating to see. Um, the other thing that's interesting is, and not that I care that much, but um, it while well, the algorithm essentially cut in half my reach. It didn't affect any part of the, and I, I don't do view what we do, Josh, really as a business per se, but, um, but in terms of book sales and um, um, podcast downloads and newsletter subscriptions and all those things, 
those things continue unabated. Um, so, uh, you know, it's interesting to, it's always been hard to correlate between participation on LinkedIn or participation on Twitter or participation on fill in your blank with good results in your business. I think that's been a big challenge for everybody, whether you're a small group of pirates like us or whether you're Procter and Gamble or the latest, you know, greatest SaaS startup or, or AI company or whatever. And so, um, if, 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 you were advising me and I was saying, hey, listen, we're a B2B company. We market heavily on LinkedIn. We've done incredible with organic search. We do some paid, but our numbers are not what they were. I don't. I haven't heard of anybody. You tell me if you know different whose numbers have gone up. Has anybody's numbers gone up? I don't have a good story of anyone whose numbers go up. I mean, I, I think um, it's probably the people who are completely unaware of their numbers and, and sort of intermittently post and, and have smaller networks. I suspect if you, you know, let's say lost the equivalent of a hundred thousand page views, I would say they probably went to, you know, 2000 different people each getting 50 views as opposed to all of your traffic moving over to, to someone else. Um, you know, I would, I would, in terms of advice, and it's it's probably a little bit easier um, for you than than someone who's counting on their LinkedIn traffic to drive course sales or sales of something in particular, is if you're putting out authentic, good content, it generally will get rewarded one way or another. And I think what we're seeing with LinkedIn is they've probably cut out a lot of the slop that you were typically seeing in your traffic, right? It, your business is going well, you're getting, you know, all those metrics are the same. Um, I suspect that that some of the, you know, vanity stuff has been uh, shifted, right? There, there's only so many people you're actually connected to. So it's probably showing the people who you're not connected to a little bit less of your stuff and more of people that are on on a first uh, name, you know, a, a first connection basis with. This is something we have noticed. So I, I wish the, you know, it's amazing to me, all these platforms, whether it's LinkedIn or Twitter or, you know, Substack is terrible. Like all of these platforms have the worst analytics. So, what it appears, I, 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 I didn't start looking at this until there was a dramatic, noticeable difference in views. And then I started to look at, this is something I'd, I've never really clicked on because I, like, I have time to spend on this bullshit. But it was curious with the, when things changed. And so uh, what I noticed is um, the number of CEOs, founders, C-level executives, like the vast majority of my posts go to that audience. And I went and looked back at a whole bunch of other posts. And while those were always in the audience, it was sort of more broadly distributed. So it seems like, again, I wish they made it easy to understand this thing analytically. Maybe if I download all the data and ask a smart person to build me a spreadsheet, they can figure it out for me. But it seems like what might be going on is number of views is going down, but impact is going up. For example, uh, our podcast platform is called Blueberry, and they do this thing that I don't think the others do because I've talked to podcasters about it, and they're always fascinated when I talk about this. So Blueberry started a new metric 
a while ago now. They call it impactful plays. And their definition of an impactful play is listeners who listen to 75% of a podcast or more. And so what they do is they tell you what your impactful plays percentage is. Then they tell you the the length of your average podcast and the length of your average listen. And, you know, we're in the high 80s, which they tell me is very good. Um, and, and look, Follow Your Different is a long-form podcast. And people say, nobody, nobody in business is going to listen for an hour. Okay, well, it turns out all of, all of them were very wrong. And so I like this idea of, a, of a, an impact play. It's sort of, it's sort of a, a way of showing level of interest or engagement. Unfortunately, it's hard to tell any of that on the social platforms. Or, or, or is it there and I'm missing it, Josh? No, it, it's... Um I think one of the frustrations of, of um, people on these platforms where it's valuable to know how their content is performing and, you know, clearly there must be some business reason to keep it obscure versus, versus helping people understand it. You know, maybe the numbers are less so people wouldn't jump, jump in um, as opposed to Twitter, which has gone the other direction and seems to just give you double or triple counting, uh, in terms of views. Um, but for example, the, the LinkedIn live platform is fantastic. If you want to do a, a live webinar, um, they, the algorithm will promote the heck out of it. You know, they'll drop it into everyone's feed. And we've, we've had five, sometimes even 10 X the number of attendees than we normally have, but it's missing things that anyone who's used a webinar platform for more than 10 minutes, would would notice you can't see who's on your webinar like you literally only have some some number that increments a little bit in terms of number of attendees but you don't know who's actually on it and um you know the the metrics that they show you are you know so vague as as to be useless right it's you had a a, you know 10 percent ceos 10 percent managers and 43% 43% from the US, which, what am I going to do with that? And they know that information. And I guess there might be a privacy argument. But, um, but these are, you know, even if it's people, you know, and who sign up. So, um, you know, it, it's sort of the perils of a free platform is they're putting their efforts where they think it's going to make them money. And I'm, I'm guessing some of these algorithm changes where they were getting very negative metrics on sort of the social publishing at very large scale model. Like I, I haven't seen some of those, um, I think I've mentioned them earlier, like the, the tragic posts or the, the, you know, the job posts um, that sort of do the equivalent of go viral. So I think they're, trying to take it back more to a little bit of the earlier social networking days. Um, and then the other thing with this is, is like um, all things, social networks, the pendulum might swing, you know, you know, six months from now, like right now they're trying to promote live video, but you know, they were trying to promote live audio when clubhouse happened. So you, you, you know, it, it changes what's, uh, what's going to get rewarded and what's not. But I agree with you. I think it's, it's keeping you in front of the engaged audience. Um, 
and and probably the people who are very very tangentially connected are not seeing as much of it. So translation, try some LinkedIn lives. Um, well, in terms of probably my favorite tactic yeah. at the moment is is doing LinkedIn lives. They make it a little challenging, but. Can you do a real-time one? Like, could I get off this podcast and just do a spontaneous ask me anything and just say, go, here I am? Or or is it much better to schedule and do it more like a webinar? Um, I found it better to schedule because that gives you time both to do whatever promotion you're going to do. And once you start getting people to sign up, LinkedIn's algorithm throws it up in front of people oh. um, a lot. So, so a huge part of the value of the platform is just that they're going to keep messaging people about it coming up and then it's live in an hour and now it's actually live. Right. So you want all that build up and ha ha ha. And oh my God, Josh is coming. Santa's coming. Santa's coming. Right. And they're going to tell you. Okay. So that's interesting. The other thing that LinkedIn is pushing at a lot of us is a LinkedIn newsletter. And I was actually reading a thread on Twitter today about LinkedIn newsletters. And one of the founders of Beehive got on to piss all over how bad LinkedIn newsletters were. So LinkedIn newsletters, Josh Green, what say you? <laughs> uh, do it. Um, you're, you're, you know, you're probably four to six months behind like the absolute sweet spot of, of starting a LinkedIn newsletter, but same kind of thing. They promote it heavily within their universe. So um if you're doing one and it's clear you're doing it on a regular basis and it's good content um you can build up an audience fairly quickly um but on the other hand it's a question of how much effort do you want to put into it what we started doing is we send our newsletter out thursday night we publish it on linkedin on fridays same newsletter um and you know we got to you know we've been building that newsletter for seven years and we probably got to about 50 percent of its size in three months um just because there's sort of that ease of finding and you know linkedin lets you invite people to it and and we'll sort of try and put it front and center um you know how many people are, are sort of seeing it for the second time that week how many people read it all the way through you know, it's the same thing as the LinkedIn Live. The metrics are, are such that anyone who's spent more than 10 minutes creating a newsletter goes, wait, why don't you tell me that? Um, so it's, it's you're sort of playing by their rules, but it's it's definitely, um, you know, been one of those things where, where the statistics are definitely uh, screaming into the void, but you can, you know, sort of be aware of, um, you know, see what the number is. And, and, uh, you know, that's X thousand people a week who see you pop up another time in their, in their feed. Um, you know, it, it, you know, and, and of course it has, in addition to the weird, uh, you know, stats, um, that they give you, you also end up with, you know, a bunch of people with strange titles, uh, you know, subscribe to your newsletter. I mean, I'm, I'm apparently very big with laundromat owners internationally, which, uh, <laughs> you know, is, is not my target audience. By the way, on this front, I probably don't help myself on LinkedIn because the uh, industry I'm in in LinkedIn is alternative medicine. 
Oh, well. Because well, I'm huh. actually, if you think about it, I'm in the alternative medicine business, right? But it means I get yeah. really funny spam <laughs> on LinkedIn. Yeah, you probably should just publish a screenshot of your LinkedIn inbox, which would be uh, <laughs> pretty funny. It is. See. I get some funny shit on there. Now, Twitter is also doing similar things. Twitter wants me to have a newsletter. And Twitter has these uh, uh, spaces. And uh, it seems like there's a handful of spaces that have really taken off. And and what I've learned with Twitter spaces that's really interesting is uh, it can be very powerful for breaking news. And so uh, there's been a couple of breaking news events over the last handful of months um, where Twitter spaces is covering it in real time. And it's incredibly powerful. Like I remember the SVB banking fiasco and there was a lot going on on Twitter spaces. Well, you knew more about what was going on with SVB and the crisis on Twitter than you could ever get on fill in the blank, Fox News, CNN, any traditional media outlet was getting smoked, in my opinion, by Twitter and specifically Twitter spaces. Uh, Elon wants me to put my newsletter there um, as well. And so w what's your take about what's going on on Twitter? And, and as a marketer, should we be doing Twitter spaces like LinkedIn Live? Should we be doing Twitter newsletters like you think we should be doing LinkedIn newsletters? Oh, and one other thing, because Elon hates Substack, all of us who ever put a Substack link on Twitter were fucked. Like I used to be able to link to a new newsletter because we have a top 10 uh, paid business newsletter on Substack. We could put a link to a newsletter on there and, you know, that 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 tweet would perform fairly well. Well, you put a fucking Substack uh, tiny URL in your tweet today, that tweet's going to nobody. Um, and so uh, what do we do with, with Twitter now, Josh? I think it, so spaces might be in interesting situation on its own it seems like the people who know how to manipulate it do very well i don't i suspect it's one of those things that if you jumped into it as a as a new participant you might have a hard time you know building the audience that that some of the established people doing it seem to be able to generate um if i was planning for it it, it sort of would be a question of you know, is the juice worth the squeeze? And and the one thing that seems to be consistent with Twitter is that everything changes on a, a really fast basis. So, um, you know, there's no guarantee that your newsletter thing will work the same way a month from now that it does now, or that now they're offering payouts, but maybe not, or, you know, so, um, a lot of times it's, do you want to commit to yet another thing or is it something you could, you know, automate if you publish a newsletter and then we're able to automate it going out on LinkedIn and on Twitter, you know, sure, why not? But if it's something you're going to need to spend a couple hours formatting every week, um, right. it, you know, it, the question would be, it, is there anything there? I you know, hard pressed to think of a newsletter on Twitter I subscribe to. And then there's sort of this whole ecosystem of, do you want to subscribe to someone's tweets? Um, so it, it's, uh, is, is that working? I mean, I've seen a number of the big players on Twitter trying to do that. And I just, 
personally, I look at it and go, well, it's sort of orthogonal to what Twitter is. So unless I, I, I haven't figured out why I'd subscribe to somebody's tweets, I pay for a verified service. So I pay my eight bucks a month. Um, and I don't have a problem with it, actually. I, I, I got Twitter for free for, you know, more than a decade. And um, I, I think users paying for things is a really good idea. Um, so I don't, I don't have a problem with that. But, I, you know, I'm confused on this because, it, to your point, I don't know a single person who's ever sent me a, a, t, a tweet or a DM or anything that says, wow, I'm subscribing to this Twitter newsletter and it's fucking awesome. Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's... Uh you know, a little bit hard to find. Um, and it's just not what people think of Twitter as being. And to the extent that people are, you know, continuing to participate in Twitter, and, and there are a lot of people, um, you can't keep track of all the changes from just a, a user experience thing. Um, you know, there there is some benefit to... Uh, you know, if you're the service that charges for verification or doesn't or does again or pays people money for tweets or doesn't pay people money for tweets, like by the time you're down to should I do a newsletter, you're like, I don't know how the platform works. So how is this uh, going to benefit me? So, you know, I think you've got some people who definitely have gone all in on I'm going to learn this platform and figure out how to make it work for me. But, you know, absent that, it, it sure seems tricky, um, you know, to, to bank an investment on a platform that's sort of shifting. I mean, LinkedIn and Facebook are notorious for shifting the rules, um, but they don't seem to do it every week. And so all this is very confusing if you're a marketing leader. And of course, I also wanted to touch on, okay, threads. Okay, blue sky. Okay, like, you know, as a marketer, should be should I be on threads? Should I set up a blue sky account? Should I wait until these platforms mature? What, what should I do here, Josh? <laughs> if I'm, whether yeah, I'm me I, I mean, or whether I'm the CMO of a S&P 500 company, I think a lot of us are trying to figure out, okay, so it feels like, the existing platforms are are building on on liquefaction. You know, here in the Bay Area, we build houses on liquefaction. They take a bunch of the bay that used to be water, they pour a bunch of dirt in it, and they build a house on it. And when when there's an earthquake, it 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 liquefies and eats your house. So those of us who've had weird experiences, let me call it that, with certain of the big social platforms, we know when you're trying to do anything of consequence on 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 the social networks that you're absolutely building on liquefaction, that they could change things in a nanosecond and, and your whole deal is fucked. And so what do I do in this world where the existing platforms that I thought I sort of understood feel more and more like liquefaction every day? And, you know, Threads blows up. Everybody says, oh, Threads is the quote-unquote Twitter killer. And now we begin to read a bunch of stuff that says, well, new signups are falling off and there isn't really much engagement on Threads and Blah, blah, blah. And then, well, you know, Jack just created Blue Sky, so let's go. So uh, most marketing leaders that I know, Josh, right now are in a situation where they're being tasked with driving more revenue than they did last year with less budget. 
less resource. So they're saying, we want you to drive 20% more, 30% more, whatever the number is, revenue than you did last year. And oh, by the way, your budget is down 25% or whatever it is. So so the marketers that I talk to are, are really feeling squeezed because they're on the hook for a bigger number, for a bigger set of outcomes, and their budgets are literally going down. And all this change is happening in the digital world. And many companies today, of course, build a meaningful part of their uh, revenue through digital marketing. And so how do I fucking sort through this, Josh? I think you start with with what's sort of core to who we are and, and what helps us get that message out. And I think it's easy to be distracted by all the stuff the the tech press loves to cover new things The you know, threads gets a ton of attention. Uh, AI gets a ton of attention. Like two weeks later, people are like, well, the answers aren't really that good, or maybe engagements dropping off on the, on threads. But there's sort of the question for people who are in those those positions of, of where do our sales really come from, right? I doubt that anyone has ever bought, um, you know, a B2B SaaS product because the tweets were really good from the product marketing team. And, and um, you know, if, if you're Oreo, you, you can win some awards for your really cool tweets about Oreos, but does it move the needle? It might, but... Um, you know, unless you're the kind of organization that's sort of nimble and will benefit from being first into something that's super new, you probably are better off taking a hard look at where you've been investing and, and putting more into the, you know, the 20%, the Pareto principle that's probably driving things. And that could be something, you know, that's totally unsexy. That could be dinners for prospective customers. That could be direct mail turns out to be well. It might even be picking up the phone and calling people. Um, but you've got to... We're not going to start calling people, sort of, Josh. That sounds Neanderthal. <laughs> I, I know. There's this thing here that you do all of your, your surfing on, but you can actually talk via voice with people. Shocking. Um, yeah, yeah. Some people do that. Um, I don't know why, but... Uh, um, but I think a lot of it is sort of core to your business. I mean, it, it, it's one of those things that sounds cool that you have your AI optimized threads and Mastodon driven social presence. But, um, you know, a lot of times CMOs have to take a hard look and say, yeah, social presence is nice, but what's, what's bringing in the thing that's ultimately, right. you know, bringing in customers that were being measured on, um, and it may be that you're being measured on your social presence, in which case, great. But if it's we need to sell, you know, widgets, where do you actually sell the widgets? Well, here's what I've noticed. When you go to the grocery store and you fill up three bags of groceries, you can't buy it with likes or views. They don't accept that as currency. Turns out they don't like that at Safeway or Whole Foods or New Leaf or wherever you go. Trader Joe's. So you got to give them U.S. cash. Uh, and there's something, so I think a lot of marketers don't know what a result is anymore. You know, we love to say around here, uh, um, if it doesn't make the cash register sing, then it ain't got that thing. And so what I hear you saying is, okay, what really works? However, if you're somebody for whom, let's say LinkedIn was really working or Twitter was really working or Facebook was really working or, or, Twi or uh, TikTok was really working, and then they change the algorithm, like for example, LinkedIn just has. I, I've talked to entrepreneurs who built 
huge parts of their business on LinkedIn. And they've called me saying, what the, literally, what the fuck do I do now? Because we know this is going to impact our pipe because our, our reach has just got cut in half. And, you know, one, there is, you know, hindsight's not real helpful in that situation. But when you're building on LinkedIn or Twitter or Facebook, you're building on rented land, um, right? You don't, you don't own the platform. It's not like an email list or a relationship that you, that you've established over time with someone. Um, but it's also important to, um, take a look at the numbers. Like it sounds like your reach was cut in half and you know, that sucks from an ego standpoint, but it may not have impacted your business at all. Um, if well, here's the irony. <laughs> so uh, from an ego perspective, I could give a fuck. I, I think I might be the only person in the world who does this kind of shit, who actually doesn't want to be famous. Um, but anyway, that's neither here nor there. The interesting thing is we just launched a new book. The 22 Laws of Category Design. Um, and it's our best-selling launched book ever. It hit number one immediately. It's been number one new release in marketing. It's been number one new release in startups, et cetera, et cetera. And so the interesting thing, and maybe this is because we have built a flywheel, because we do have an email list, because we do participate in thriving digital communities that are focused on entrepreneurship, marketing, and of course, category design. Um, our, we have, you know, our friends Damp and John and Pablo just launched this thing called uh, Category Thinkers, a Slack community, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And so it's sort. this is the other weird part, which is all this liquefaction is happening in the social world. And yet our latest product, if you will, has been our most successfully launched product. So I, we don't know how to sort of triangulate any of this. Right. It, it's, uh, it, you know, I think that's one of the, uh, you know, the big challenges right now is, is everyone has made assumptions that, that a lot of the vanity metrics, you know, went along and correlated with things that were happening in their business. And there's, there's really, you know, a need to try and dig into what is actually the cause of all of these things. And can you, measure it or can you figure out why and and i would hypothesize in your case you're out there you're beating on a drum you're very clear which drum you want to beat on you're very clear who should be listening to you and i think even if you don't know exactly how the linkedin algorithm permeates things i think there's just sort of a general sense of the universe that makes its way through things and says, yes, this is the answer to anyone looking for this particular question. If you were, you know, promoting a book about your 22 rules of business and, and how to get ahead um, in marketing, right? And it was wishy-washy, whatever those signals are, whatever those techniques are, um, it wouldn't come through. So I think there's also just a, who are you? What is your message? And it goes back to sort of where we started are you are you creating a category are you saying i'm i'm in the space that everyone else in the world is in um one of those things is probably going to get rewarded and one of those probably is not it's funny the more things change the more they stay the same (laughs) 
I remember when I started down this whole author, podcaster, creator path about almost eight years ago now, I, I fully expected, Josh, that I would meet a guy like you and you would say, hey, here are the, like, here are the tablets, here are the six hacks that if we do these things, you're going to go viral and, and we could just pay you some amount of money and you would hack things and poof. Right. Because that's what a lot of the digital marketers sort of it's the bullshit they sell us. Right. That, that there's some sort of magical thing that if you take my course, you'll figure out. And what I hear you saying is that's absolutely not the case. What's the case is design a category you can own. Get active digitally in that world, build real credibility, build real relationship with real people that matter, produce stuff that's unique. And the world will kind of take care of itself. And oh, by the way, and I had this conversation a while back with Amy um, Potterfield, mail list, mail list, mail list, mail list. The most valuable thing we have is an opt-in mail list. And so the, the aha that has been the aha, at least in my life, as it relates to digital marketing for the last eight years since I became a quote-unquote creator is mail list. Get people on your mail list. Is that, are we still where we were? Are we, is it, everything else moves around, but at the end of the day, fuck around on all these platforms, do what you can and move them off the liquefaction into a world that you can control. Is that, is that still the quote unquote big hack here? (laughs) Uh, It would be, it would be. um, Yeah. I, I mean, although if you do have an unlimited budget and want the super hack, give me a call, we'll work something out. But, uh, um, okay, well, actually, yeah, let's go there. Is- so let's say, say to you, okay, I want the super hack. I'm, I'm a CMO of a established company, maybe a startup. I, I, I understand. I want to be native digital, and I want to crush it in the digital world. And I call you up, and I say, hey, Josh, money doesn't matter. We want to be ubiquitous. We want to be known as the leader in this category. We're, we want to do paid. We want to do earned. We want to do the whole thing. How much do I want? And let's say I have a fairly, you know, I know who I want to go talk to. So I'm not trying to find every person who might be, you know, pregnant in America or whatever. I'm not a massive consumer brand. I, I have some focus. I know roughly where the kind of people who, who the, I know who my super consumer is. Let me say it that way. Uh, and I want to get to those super consumers exclusively. Uh, and there's maybe hundreds of thousands of them, not millions of them. What, what do I have to spend to do that? You know, the challenge when you when you start down the road to, you know, trying to find a hack is you're essentially trying to shortcut or fake the authenticity, right? And it's sort of instead of, you know, owning our thing, we'll spend tons of money to try and get that message out. Um, I, I think, you know, to the extent there's a hack, it, it's spend money smartly, which sort of circles back to where we started, you know, put good information out there that's going to be useful, that's targeted to your super consumer, make sure that your product actually is is something that they, you know, are interested in, need and and want. And certainly um, money can buy you the, the distribution. But oftentimes, if there's a hack, it's it's spending time on the front end and figuring out what it is you're making and how to make it really, really fit for that super consumer, right? You, you, you know, 
you, Christopher, own category design, right? If I wanted to get into the category space because I had a cool software product, I could spend a lot of money to be all the places that you show up organically, but I still would have to worry about, I'm going to sound like a carbon copy of, of him. Hmm. So, you know, I've heard and read in the industry that there are influencers, podcasters, authors, et cetera, et cetera, who right now are spending as much as a million bucks a month sort of quote unquote going viral. <laughs> <laughs> they create this impression that their shit's just going everywhere because it's awesome when in point of fact they're actually spending you know a meaningful amount of money to make sure that what on whatever platform you see their content if you're remotely close um to to the super consumer demographic they're going after so you know let me give you a for instance so we we're always working on our next book so we're working on our next book if i said to you hey josh we have an unlimited budget and we don't care what we do. We want it to be authentic. We don't want to do any douchebaggy things. And we don't want to do any, you know, buy now operators. Or, you know, we don't want to do any sleazy things. We want to be a real company. Um, what do you think it takes um, to do that today? How many platforms, how much money would you think about spending, whether it's for the launch of a big book or maybe the launch of a new software product? Yeah, I mean... You know, and and I'm more familiar with the the book launch versus the software. Product, okay, so give me the but, book launch, <laughs> right? You can you can pay to play. I mean, if you're if you're willing to spend in the low six figures, there are plenty of of um, you know bestseller lists that you can end up on. It's it's sort of like one of your posts from the other day where you start out, you can win an award from a magazine for you know five hundred bucks, and you sort of scale up. From there, if you, uh, you know, if you were going to spend a half million bucks because you're putting out this book on your, you know, B2B philosophy of life, you could certainly show up in a lot of bestseller lists. Um, you know, there are companies that specialize in sort of how many do you need to sell? How do you need to appear to sell them? And how do you get people to buy them? Um, you know, so there are ways to do that. I don't know if it's cost efficient. It's it's not cost efficient in terms of selling books, but it may be worth it. Um, if your goal is just to have all of those logos of, of things you've air quotes achieved on, on your webpage. Well, I think you know what I think about that. Yes. I believe you've said a few things. About I, I that. think I've been very, very clear. Any CMO who needs to pay stink magazine uh, 500 bucks to get on their best places to work, you know, and uh, Forbes does it, Inc. does it, Fast Company does it. Uh, it's really, it's disgusting. And I think if you have to pay for an award to build your category and brand, then uh, you might want to stop being in marketing and go work at the DMV. That's my, <laughs> that's my opinion. So it sounds like what you're telling me is, yes, I can, I can pay for a lot of paid uh, presence on social. Um, but the reality is, there is no hack. The reality is go do the work. Yeah, I think that's a, a good uh a good you don't have a you don't, you don't have everything. a twenty five hundred dollar course I can buy that will promise me uh superstardom on the interwebs. Uh, I can send you a postcard that says do the work if you want to send me twenty five hundred dollars. <laughs> Excellent. Josh, is there anything else you'd like to touch on? I think that covered it. And I think that's maybe a great closing note is, is sometimes you just got to do the work. <laughs>
Josh, you're awesome. Keep keep up doing the legendary work and you're welcome back anytime. Well, thank you. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me on. That was the legendary Josh Green, CEO at The Mather Group. To learn more about Josh and his amazing company, go to themathergroup.com. And if you know someone who would enjoy this podcast, please share it with them now. Right now. We'll wait. And we also appreciate your social media shares and word of mouth. WAM is, was, and always will be the greatest form of marketing. We would like to thank you. Thank you for investing part of your life with us. Now, your website is the first thing people see about you. Is it legendary? If you're in a B2B tech company and it's time for a rapid relaunch of your site, visit our friends at Atranet. That's A-T-R-E dot net. And don't forget to go to Amazon and pick up your copy of Category Pirates' number one bestseller in marketing and startups, The 22 Laws of Category Design. Today's information is provided to you solely for informational purposes. This oddcast is the sole property of the Lockhead Oddcast Network. It contains content known to the state of California to cause new categories and radically different futures. Please consult your lawyer, doctor, shaman, mystic, butcher, mechanic, dental hygienist, yoga instructor, and of course, category designer, before acting on any of today's information. Warning, the creators of this oddcast may have been consuming libations. Everything is the way it is because a category designer changed the way it was. Produced and edited by me, Jason DeFilippo. And check out my new tech podcast, Boot Up with Jason, wherever fine podcasts are sold. Sarah Knox and Jamie J. do our technical execution and Lockhead.com. Show notes by GM Simon, RJ and EX Bobus do our web development, and Cedric Biros does our graphic and web design. And the thought we'll leave you with comes from Publius Cirrus, who said, A good reputation is more valuable than money. And until we meet again, stay safe, stay legendary, and follow your different.